I think the fundamental issues that people come back to are kind of human issues about workplace psychology, about how we communicate with each other, how we interact with each other as as people. I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. And I'm Pradeep. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the van. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. We uh, trapped Pradeep. I am trapped. We didn't tell him that we were recording in a van, so... Maybe surprise. we should do that every time, like not tell people and then just it be a surprise. Just, just a confusion. <laughs> yeah, know. exactly. And then film everyone's surprise. Yeah. Know? Or one of those things where you roll up on them and mm. then just jump out, grab them and pull them in. <laughs> that was that? so good. You could have blindfolded me at my house and just walked me in and just sat me down and like, now. Yeah. Yeah. I could have had Lauren do that because yeah. you haven't met her before. Yeah. So just perfect. Excellent. Great new segment. Okay, I love this. <laughs> kidnapping with Lauren and Tia. Yeah, sure. In a nice way. Kidnapping, yeah. open brackets, in a nice way. Yeah. Close brackets. Yeah. Fun napping. Is, yeah, fun napping. <laughs> I love it. Van napping, fun Look napping. Look at it. We're ideating. I, <laughs> I love it. Right. Uh, we are joined by Pradeep Jaratnam Joyner, who is Aspire Leadership's Head of Company Development. And Pradeep leads on the training of their team. And he specializes in leadership, strategic planning, equality, diversity, and inclusion, and management skills. Wow. That makes it sound very grand. Pressure's on. So don't screw it up. (laughs) So, Pradeep, tell us a little bit about your journey. My journey. So my journey is a slightly curious one. So all the all the team from Aspire Leadership come from very different places. So my journey was that I was originally an actor and and a creative and That got me interested in essentially storytelling and the stories we tell. And through a long set of circumstances, that basically led to me becoming a business psychologist, because actually it was about what stories do organisations tell? What do the people within an organisation tell? How does their story affect their leadership management and the culture of the organisation? So I still have connections to the world of theatre and acting. And, you know, my wife works in that arena and so do a lot of my friends and I'm on the board of trustees. And I'll occasionally do something if asked. But usually my day is essentially delivering training to people across the globe in leadership and management skills and working with them on trying to create the practical stuff that backs up the good intentions. Because I think when you ask people, everyone kind of goes to work going, ah, I want to have a nice effect on my team. I want it to be a nice place to work. But then the reality of having to get stuff done on a deadline with even less and less money all the time to support you doing it comes in. So that's my role to try and go, right, what practically can we do to support what you want to do? Can I just say I love this framing of organisations telling their stories? Because it's just, I think for us as consultants, you go in and you start to understand people's Mm. stories and you're starting to understand how organisations work. And this narrative shaping, I think, is just a really nice way of framing the culture Mm. of organisations. And it goes down to the individual level. We can start talking about, you know, what's the story you tell about you as you're working in an organisation, but then also the story you tell yourself. You both have discussed like imposter syndrome, things like that. What are you telling yourself and how is that preventing you from being as effective as you could be or not as you could be, as you want to be? I think that's the key bit is what's the difference between the story you're telling and the story you want to be telling? Because I think often, ooh, I've just knocked over my microphone. I've broken everything. <laughs> yeah. Everything's falling apart. Yeah, I've broken all the stuff. We're not insured for this. <laughs> what was I saying? I think there's often a difference between the story that an organisation is maybe telling on its website 
people we're telling on our LinkedIn CV. Um, and then the one... what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> and then the one where we or the organisation is telling in terms of actually what's happening day to day. And then there's probably a third story, which is the one when we go to bed. I'm saying this because I'm looking at Tia's bed, <laughs> so bed right Hard now. Hard to not bring it into the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, just so you know, we're in the van. So for all you new listeners, that's that's why everyone's in my bedroom. It's, it's very tidy. So the, the one that actually when we go to bed and when we go to sleep, we say that's the story I want to be telling. It's making sure that those three things match up what we're doing externally what we're thinking internally and what we're doing. And that's one of the things that as consultants we try to do mm. and bring into that space is how you bridge that rhetoric reality gap. Yeah. So when we're doing evaluations or reviews, we're saying, yeah, these are all of your best of intentions, yeah. but let's see how that it's- really played out from the perspective of your beneficiaries or your participants or your teams. Mm-hmm. That for me is probably the more challenging part of the work that we do is yeah. when you're confronted with a different image than the one you thought or the one that you're portraying. And that's... How, how do you tell them that it's different? You know, like, <laughs> it's actually, it's... your stories are not matching. Yeah. <laughs> Whose job is that? I think a lot of places and a lot of people, if there's a difference, we want to hide it. My colleague Jess always says, just because you keep the can of worm closed, the worms are still in the can. <laughs> yeah. It's still there. You know, you can, hide, yeah. you can not look at it as much as you want. But yeah. whose job is it to just bring that into reality and actually go, look, it's here. What do you want to do about it? I mean, that's part of the reason why we started this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> what, to look at the worms? Yeah. <laughs> to, to open the worms and to throw them in people's faces in a very public fashion. But out of an abundance of love and bringing mm. in specialists, experts like Pradeep to help everyone figure it out. Yay! Because Yay. I think that's our problem in this sector in particular, because we get public money. Mm-hmm. There is the assumption that we are always doing good, amazing work because, oh, we love the world and aren't yeah. those babies so sad? Let's help them. Our worms are shined with gold. Our, yes, we have golden worms. <laughs> and I think that creates a real resistance to looking at things very publicly and being okay with that. We've done evaluations that never see the light of day and they say, yeah. no, this is just for us to learn. And there you can generally rip them to shreds, obviously based on evidence. <laughs> but the second it's like, okay, well, this is for a donor, mm. then the narrative around that product. And in fact, the way that we undertake it sometimes changes because they're trying to make sure that they're managing the message all along the way, which is hard. I think that sometimes the values thing of we're doing good in the world becomes, well, the ends justify the means. Yeah, Um, It's great to be values driven, but if we turn it up to 11, it means that the structures can fall apart, the other bits that fall apart. Or we say one value trumps everything else. Mm -hmm. I'm doing good by my beneficiaries, trumps I'm taking care of my people or whatever it might be. We kind of go, okay, well, I'm doing the thing. It's a hyper outcome focus. I had an interesting interview with one of our clients and they were relaying this idea of values trading. So depending on who they were interacting with, that was the values that they were emphasizing more or willing to give up, depending on the type of relationship. For example, partnering with repressive regimes. (laughs) So there goes all your gender work, all your LGBT Mm -hmm. stuff, all of that goes out the window, depending on who you're talking to. I feel the tension of the context because that matters, but I also 
feel like, oh, can't we just like hold hard lines? Playing devil's advocate. No. You know, would we? No, no, I can't do that. <laughs> cannot <Please>. do that. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess that there's something that we're always trading in that sense. And we're always trying mm-hmm. to place different values and look at where they sit in our hierarchy and where they sit in the hierarchy for other people. During the pandemic, I'm on the board of trustees of a charity. And before furlough was introduced, we were having this debate. We've got the money. How do we support our people? But then there's the trade-off between wanting to be generous, but also wanting to be sustainable or right. even fair because I might go, well, actually, I want to give Lauren more money because Mm. I know that she's got these circumstances and that might be more generous, but is it fair to everybody else? And I'd argue as leaders, we're always having to make these trade-offs. Well, which one am I going to work with in this situation? It's more stark when you have things like repressive regimes. I can see how that is the dilemma of leadership. If I go, right, that's it. Then what does that cut me off to? Have I got the skills to manage the fallout of that? And I think the fallout of that in our space is very extreme because- Mm for not-for-profits, you're essentially employing professional activists. Yeah. yeah. So if they're pissed off, they're yeah. really pissed off. <laughs> they're going to tell you about it. They're going to make posters about it. <laughs> so all the values at all the same time yeah. need to be number one forever and ever and yeah. ever. And if they're not, we're going to get you. I'm inferring that then there's that kind of challenge between how much you are leading and how much you are consulting. Because mm, you know, if, yeah. if we ask the activist population, what do you want? Okay, there's this. And someone at the top is going, well, mm, yeah, well where where can I go with this? And yeah. you know, where, where do they steer? I'm curious about telling the story around the trade-offs. Mm. Do leaders need to also then not only tell a story, but include in that story the trade-offs that they're making story. Yeah, I, don't, I think so. I mean, I'd like to say the key part of leadership is making the decisions, not following the manual. So don't do just do it because I said on some podcast. You know, well, too late. Yeah. 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 Well, said on a podcast, I have to do this. Um, if we share the narrative and share the trade-offs, I hope people will then be able to understand where we're at. If I'm not going to share, which actually is your decision as a leader, it's then going, well, okay, can I be strategic about what might be the impact of that? And can I mitigate or work with the impact of that? So it's a leadership decision as a leader. Are you thinking through what will happen if you do this? And going back to your point about the evaluations and that mismatch between culture and what it says and what's happening. Yeah, if you... I don't know, put pressure on someone to deliver this outcome, but completely crush people's work-life balance. Fine, you do that. That's your decision. But then you've got to own that there's an impact of that. You can't afterwards say, oh, but I was pursuing the outcome. You know, yeah. like, you've got to own all of it. Right? Yeah. I, I think that's the thing. And that when you're saying about when we point this out, going, yeah, OK, I've got to take the rough with the smooth, so to speak. You can't just own the nice squishy bits. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's what we do a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're like, but look at all of these people. Yeah. And not all the teams are just like, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about teams. Mm. You mentioned some of the things that you are hearing a lot about Mm. or getting questions on. It's about keeping team connection in hybrid working environments. I think that's also really relevant to the stuff that we do in our space because we're often working with teams across country. So we've Mm. been doing remote style working for a while. How do you do that? Because I've been on teams where we've just sat there and said, oh, it's just weird. We've never met each other or we're never going to meet each other. What is this like? Whereas before you had all this stuff. I've been trying to do virtual beers Mm -mm. with people. It's not as fun. It's a bit weird getting drunk by yourself. Thirsty Thursdays. Is that the... The beer itself is virtual on a phone and you, like, you don't... <laughs> yeah, it's, a... it's going down. Yeah. There was that app where it was a beer oh, and you could yes. turn it and it would yeah. go down. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that. that. Everyone gets one of those. Yeah. 
Is a cop-out answer going, I don't know? <laughs> so, well, I, think, I think there's an element to which people forget that we're really new to this stuff. Arguably, as a species, we're still learning how to interact with each other face-to-face after thousands of years, let alone interacting with each other in the virtual space. Right. I guess it relates to what you're alluding to with consultation stuff. Rather than leaders going, okay, I'm going to put this on my team and then we're going to have connection, sort of enforced fun. Yeah. It's actually sort of having a conversation about, okay, this is how we're working. How do we as a group want to take responsibility for keeping our connection? What are the things we value? What are the things that are important to us? How do we want to do it? And actually that be as much of the part of the conversation as how are we going to deliver? How are we going to do this? You know, people are very used, especially in agile environments, to having a conversation about how we all going to put this together. Maybe not so much about how we're going to be together. Mm. So that group contract isn't just about what we're doing, but about how we're doing it as well. And so for me, it's really encouraging that group and that team level conversations about what's working and an element of playfulness. If it works to have team beers, virtual beers uh, one week, that'd be great. But that doesn't mean that's going to be the thing next week. Let's try something else. And that's actually what we do in face to face, right? We wouldn't say, oh, it has to be every Thursday we go out and we do this <laughs> and then we bond. <laughs> yeah, so. Gosh, you're right. You make me think that there's a rigidness to how people approach yeah. connection in COVID times, right? Like yeah. there was a Thursday beer, everybody be there and that's it. She's talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> On a spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thirsty Thursdays, it's in your calendar, recurring. Yes. And, and I think also that face-to-face, we would completely accept that, say we have Thursday Thursdays, if one person can't make it, we just go, okay, well, we'll find other ways to bring that person in. Rather than going, oh no, you've got to make it, it's the team Zoom thing, it's how we connect. We just go, okay, well, let's find other ways. Let's experiment. Let's just keep going. My own theory is it's to do with the fact that we can't just pick up the phone and we schedule things. We kind of become very rigid about what the structure of it has to be rather than keep the social interaction. But I think part of it is the beginning part of just a discussion of how do we want to work together? How do we want to be together? Yeah. Part of the question about how we break the bad news to clients that we've got that rapport is maybe to talk about the contract with them and say, look, part of our job is to write down what we see and give it to you. Some of it is going to be stuff he likes. Some of it is going to be stuff you don't like. How are we going to work that? And that be from the beginning part of it. If I'm a manager, part of my job is to give you feedback. Some of it's going to be nice. Some of it you're not going to be so happy about. How do we do that without hating each other at the end of the conversation? Because it's all our responsibility to hold that culture. So one of the questions we've started asking is Mm. how open are you to hearing challenging feedback? Mm. And without fail, the project team is, we want it. Tell us everything. Because they're the commissioning group. They're the Mm. ones who are like, we really want to hear this or we have to and we're curious. It's that moment when we build outside of that or the second the CEO starts reading it where you've got the project team who are like, oh, this is good. It's so fresh and candid. And then you get a CEO who then starts to really freak out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe there's a secondary question there, not just the project group, but what's the effect of this on the wider group? Yeah. And I think we spend a lot of time doing stakeholder mapping with our clients because we want to understand all of the people in play. And I think the issue for us is that that exercise is undertaken with, I think, the right people in mind. So Mm -hmm. beneficiaries and donors, but I don't think they look at the internal climate 
And I think that that's kind of an interesting one. But I like this idea of figuring out how you want to be. And a lot of this resonates because Lauren and I, we work very closely on so many different projects. And mm. I don't think we've actually worked out how we're going to work together. But between us? Yes. Yeah, we haven't had a strategy conversation. <laughs> but stop calling it a strategy conversation. I hate it. I mean, you're the strategy queen. Exactly. That's why I don't want to have a strategy session with you. I want to do our like, we'll you know, our social, like, our social contract. Consultation session. Exactly. Because what happens with us is that we'll be working on something. We'll get really stressed mm. out. And then we'll start yelling at each other. <laughs> and then we'll say, oh, but we should have figured this out before. But then we get another project and then we never figure that out. We're just like, okay, well, we just accept this is the point at which we're going to scream at each other. And then eventually we'll get it. It doesn't have to be that we've worked everything out in advance. It's going to be, look, if we know that there's going to be days we're going to scream at each other, we're going to shout at each other. It's how are we going to recover from that? And it might be just let's both agree to give each other some space and then go for a drink afterwards. Right? It's okay that these things will fall apart. What are we going to do when the bus breaks down they're like yeah. you know flicking back slightly for that question about how open are you to the tougher feedback i wonder whether there's a another question which is how important is that feedback to you because mm. when you were saying about people really want to look at the stuff around beneficiaries or they want to look at stuff around donors but then when it comes to internal culture they're like eh. That conversation up front about how important is feedback about your internal culture to you as leaders and as an organization. I'm guessing you'll have a similar kind of all the project teams going, yes, it's very important. And, you and know, then all, all the, the people in leadership roles are like, no. Yeah. <laughs> but at least it sort of opens up the dialogue about if you don't want to know this stuff, why not? Yeah. And again, go back to what I said before, if you don't want to know it, fair enough, that's your call. But you've got to handle the fallout of not knowing it. Yes. You know, you've got to be aware that that's there. Yeah. And I think behind that, if they don't want to know it, the culture and organization culture comes up no matter what we're exploring because mm. they are managing the project and yeah. therefore it has an effect on our findings. So it's almost like teasing out, you know, this is going to come out mm. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it, it never fails. We, we'll do something. We'll have these interviews. We have interview questions that are reviewed by the project team. And then the second we sit down, hit the record button, that person is always like, and the leadership is shit. And <laughs> People have a lot to say. And I'm like, but job title, I don't even understand what it is. And they just start unloading. And I'm like, yeah. I don't know you. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> However, okay, fine. But then from those conversations, when you're always tracking back to these key things around leadership, governance, the structure of an organization, these are themes that come out no matter what kind of project we're doing. And I like this idea of just saying up front, these are things that are probably going to come out because they always come out. We submitted a report and the big section on that was about the internal mechanism being ill-equipped to handle the ambition of the organization yeah. and they all went wait hang what what <laughs> and i was like okay well you gave us the people yeah <laughs> you approved the questions we're just telling you what they said yeah. but i like the idea of saying that up front we've done seven big projects and yeah we need to have like a list of these questions good advice i like it let's sit down and we'll do our ways of working. <laughs> We're talking about us now. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <okay. laughs> yeah, we've got some work to do. <laughs> yeah, the problem is that there's no leadership here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've got no one else to blame. Yeah. <laughs> I think one other thing we've come across is matrix management. Mm. I mean, I don't know how much you work with that or advise people on that. People trying to figure out if I have two separate managers yeah. and they're both leaders, how do I manage that? Both big voices or even the other way around. I've 
almost jumped the gun with my piece of advice there. Right? <laughs> I think that's where it becomes ultimately very crucial. Matrix management has its upsides and its downsides, that way of working. But also a lot of the issues, issues, that sounds terrible, but a lot of the things that can come up are eminently predictable. Like you've just said, if there are two big voices, what do I do if there's competing priorities? Right. What do I do if one person is line managing me, but actually the person I'm working with on a project is the one who's dealing with me day to day and my line manager is actually working on a completely different project doesn't have the relationship with me to maybe give me some of the more immediate stuff that I need to know. Does that resonate for any of you? (laughs) I dare not say because she was my matrix manager. (laughs) 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 Just got a bit awkward. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have a quick 10 minutes after and put it in the bloopers. (laughs) You know, there's some of those things really come up. I think especially around the lines of accountability when it comes to feedback. And so, you know, a lot of times it can seems to go that one matrix manager is good cop and the other one is bad. You know, one's yeah. the one that get, gets to sit down and say, oh, you've done all this, all they've done this, and now we're rating you with this. And, the, you know, yeah. and the other one is the one that's going, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, you know. Yeah, and actually yeah. everyone having a conversation together. I think the challenge that always comes back is, well, but that takes time. Yeah. And it's messy. And sometimes you don't end up with a clear answer, but that starting the conversation is more important than not for me not having it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever we've got a guest, the major conclusions that seem to come is have weird conversations or have hard conversations. Yeah. No matter what we're talking about, that just seems to be part of the advice. Surely there's a trust needed in that, right? Like a trust factor. Now I'm reflecting on my managers. I need to kind of get a sense of, are they wanting my feedback on their role Mm. and how they're managing me? Because they don't always want that. And there's not always that two-way street. And if I say something, do I trust that they're going to do something about it? I suppose the thing for me there would be then it becomes a bit like prisoner's dilemma, doesn't it? It's in everyone's interest uh, to have this conversation, but it's in no one's interest to go first. Yeah, yeah, true. So there is an element, and this is where when we're working with individual leaders, a lot of what we're talking about is you've got the power to start this process Mm. because you can start it in a way that you have more safety. There's less danger for you to start it than maybe for someone talking to their manager. (laughs) At the same time, I don't think it should be just the leadership. There can be great power in someone saying, look, I want this conversation because it builds trust to even just say, this is the kind of conversation I want with you. And actually, I believe we can have it. That in itself is making the first move to trust. So sometimes the trusting can become almost an excuse for inaction. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of times we go into stuff and we'll just jump in and do it when we don't fully trust or we don't fully know, but we'll go, well, we've all got to get on with it. We've all got to do it. Yeah. Like getting into a bus. Yeah. (laughs) I'm literally in a bus by a park that someone has come out and said, get into my bus, which is exactly what my parents told me never to do. You did it. Yeah. I mean, the offer of puppies, clearly. Yeah. 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 Puppies puppies. puppies and kittens. You know, pretty jumped right in. Quality, diversity and inclusion. We talk to a lot of organisations and clients and they Mm. have frameworks and policies. We look at them, we review what's there. But then there's always this kind of blockage to, well, actually doing the work and it actually yeah. materialising into something that everyone is using your phrase earlier, not a dick. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, what's the secret there or what are the blockages that need to be unpacked? There's three areas for me at Aspire we talk about almost like a fire triangle. There's three elements. There's a, there's obviously policy, 
practice procedure structures. There's the leadership and culture and individual behavior, and then the support for marginalized, excluded groups, whoever they might be in the organization. What can happen a lot of the time when clients are coming to us is that they've got one or two of the three that they want to look at, but not all three. And I think that's part of the challenge. You know, our most frequent thing is that people will come and say, well, I want to do unconscious bias training for everyone. Well, great. That, that's brilliant if you do that, but it doesn't really do that much unless you've got the support of the policies and frameworks, unless you've got the confidence of the excluded groups to raise their voice in there. And actually people having an understanding what that means on a day-to-day basis beyond knowing about unconscious bias. I guess this is your your bread and butter, so you can tell me how to make this argument in the sense (laughs) what comes through is people want to do X, but only uh, think it will take about this much time and this much investment. And you kind of go, that's actually a really much bigger project. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but we've got a working group. Like, yeah, okay, yeah. Yes, cool. Exactly. Is it resourced? Yeah. <laughs> or is this volunteer time? What are we talking about? Yeah. yeah. It, and it's exactly that kind of thing. It's a work culture project. It's an organizational transformation, unless you treat it with the same kind of level that you would do a, you know, we're going to move the entire office to Manchester. It's going to be really hard because all you're doing is chipping yeah. away and some progress. I think the legacy of people thinking, oh, I had mandatory diversity training when I was at X organization is a feeling. <laughs> that it can be solved really quickly if we yeah. just do this. As an entire society, which we're still trying to solve it, so you're not going to be able to solve it in your organisation just like that. Right, you know right. But for me, it's that fire triangle. Are you attacking all three or looking at all three simultaneously and having a conversation about all three? simultaneously. Gosh, this just resonates so much. Arriving mm. in an organisation, doing a couple of diversity trainings, check, 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 and then not knowing how to apply that day to day. And then people just go off, do their work and get bogged down with reports and everything. And then that's it. But how do you apply something like unconscious bias every day? So for me, there's a clear link to how we're leading as leaders. I think that view of what is the importance of hearing contrary voices or contrary feedback, I suppose the adaptation of the question, what is the importance of hearing different voices? Mm or having different ways of working, or having different perspectives in on this. Right. I think ways of working, actually, conversations you know, with colleagues about things like neurodiversity. How much as a team will we tolerate someone who has a very different work style to me, that works in a very different way or needs certain things? You know, How much are we all okay with that? That conversation about leadership that I think we were just discussing about, you know, what do you want to hear? What do you want to be part of? Is the other part of it. And I think probably the other part that sits is that quality, diversity, inclusion isn't a separate adjunct to leadership and culture. <laughs> you know, it is leadership and culture. Yeah. So we're laughing because people often segregate it to its yeah. own little space and we're yeah. just like, stop doing that. But but also then that it becomes this kind of EDI is one thing over here, but actually underneath that is neurodiversity, mm. anti-racism practices. Not that that's just a monolith for everything. Unpacking actually, what yeah. does that mean? We're launching soon, quick plug, a public <laughs> diversity and inclusion course as part of our public courses. And one of the challenges we had is a lot of the content is the same as our leadership course, because actually <laughs> it's, it's not separate. Yeah. It is really good. <laughs> so I think it is, how do we integrate it as much as we would integrate any any other practice. I think organisations are used to kind of going, well, how do we make sure that M&E is ingrained into the organisation on a day-to-day basis? But, okay, maybe they're not so good at that. Yeah. But, you know, in theory, the M&E <laughs> you know, in theory, they're thinking about like, okay, we need to be recording this, we need to be doing this because we know that this is going to happen. The key thing comes down to individual behaviour day-to-day. And for me, there's a big part of what are people rewarded by? Not necessarily in terms of sort of monetary reward, but if I get 
ahead by, say, achieving results quickly without consultation with my team, without bringing up sticky stuff, riding roughshod over everything. And that's actually how I get ahead in an organization. Well, then it's going to start becoming less inclusive because I'm not taking the time to hear difference. If I'm getting rewarded for getting messy and having those complicated conversations that you said it keeps coming back to, and the organization is socially rewarding me as well and saying that's what we value on a day-to-day basis, it links a lot to does your report go in a drawer or do we open it up and say, you know what, let's talk about this. Yeah, there's a huge trade-off in there that we come across all the time, whereas we want it to be inclusive and we want the time to include a lot of different voices, but there's not time, Mm. we're pushed for time, they're not available, and therefore we move on quickly. Mm. So there's a trade-off there that we come across a lot. One of the things that we've tried to integrate at different stages of our projects is an equity pause. Mm. So we're asking clients to tell us who's missing Mm -hmm. and what voices are left out. How might we be reinforcing inequality within that particular project. The idea is one for us to get a sense about who might be excluded from yeah. our work, but it's also mm-hmm. trying to model good behavior. Yeah. <laughs> Look at what we're doing. That's what we've been doing. Ha ha ha. So that they can see what it's like to think about the voices yeah. who might be missing. And sometimes they say things like former staff. Sometimes it'll be things that are kind of in parallel to their work. And sometimes yeah. it'll just be really interesting mm-hmm. groups that probably nobody has ever thought of considering within in the scope of our work. Yeah. So we got one that was drug users in mm. internally displaced persons camps. Wow. A really, really yeah. specific, but that group said, this is really important to us. Now that's nowhere in the terms of reference. It's nothing mm-hmm. that's part of the project. We wouldn't have known that this was a priority without asking them, who are the groups that are important to you that aren't visible in this space? And Whose I think voice that's... haven't we heard? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I think actually that might be how we phrase yeah. it. Yeah, that is our question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think your point back there so many things underneath in neurodiversity. The other part of EDI is coming at it very much from the lens of, certainly in the UK, oh, there are nine protected characteristics. I need to think about nine protected characteristics rather than inclusion and diversity is actually about hearing voices. So being a drug user in a refugee camp isn't directly a protected characteristic, but it is a voice that we need to hear and actually kind of going, okay, who haven't we heard from? Who aren't we hearing from? I think the practice that we've been going around and peddling to clients Mm. is just about attunement. Mm. So a combination of attunement and action, recognising what you don't know, what you know, who might know something else, recognizing what voices are missing, and then deciding to do something about it. Because Mm -hmm. sometimes what really hacks me off is when people are like, yeah, 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 but we just don't have time for it, as we were talking about before. I'm like, okay, so you know, you're just choosing not to do anything about it. And to your point, okay, fine. But the impact of that, you need to be willing to hold. And quite often it becomes like a reactive. It's not till somebody else calls them out that then they're like, oh, okay. I think there's also then what comes up is that stuff that people do have time for. And, you know, time is a factor. There are only so many hours in a day that perfection becomes the enemy of progress that people go, oh, well, because it's not doing all of it, we don't have time. None of the recommendations get looked at. And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, you could move the needle a little bit. If we all move the needle a little bit and tried some things out, then actually we're going to all move forward just that little bit. And I think a lot of time people go, well, we just can't pay for that kind of project completely, I don't know, revamp our recruitment and how we do it. And it's like, oh, okay, well, 
What's a little thing you can do? Yeah. Break it down a little bit and just move forward an inch. One of the things that we do is ask people to think about what can you do tomorrow? Mm. Yeah. Which does help, but that exercise usually takes them the longest. Yes. Because yeah. we're all aspirational people and we're like, we're going to do this whole big thing and transform this and do this and do this. And I'm like, okay, but what will you do tomorrow? Yeah. And that's... Uh... Well, I mean, it's the trade-off between wanting to be transformative and yeah. then like incremental steps. Yeah. And we often talk about being an incrementalist versus being a transformative mm. person or organisation. This is yeah. our battle. Yeah. yeah, our daily battle. <laughs> we talk a lot as the leadership about the power of positive feedback. And I think for me personally, the EDI kind of space can get quite critical in X isn't doing enough, X isn't doing this. It's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. And I think there's a danger that we lose sight of when people have made progress and progress that is steadily building. I don't think that means that we should take our eye off that there are huge systemic problems. We're still going to keep pushing it up a mountain. I'd also like us to be able to look back and go, oh, yeah, we're actually making progress up this mountain at the same time. I think the flip side of that is sometimes people go to, oh, well, we're making progress out of the money mountain. We're done now. I just mentioned the money there. That was some kind of Freudian, <laughs> some kind of like... It was a combination uh, of money and mountain. I was like, money mountain. <laughs> money mountain. Yeah. Clearly, I'm thinking of something. Money Something's growing in there. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll take it. For me, it really resonates with some of the feedback. It's either we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. We're just going to step back from that. Or if we're not at fully 100, that is a failure and... Yeah. I am now racked with debilitating anxiety about the fact that I'm not perfect. One of the things that we've been saying is it's a journey. Yeah. If we could solve systemic inequality, as you said before, yeah. we would. And we'd sit on a money mountain. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd monetize it. Yeah. That, that's not they're hard stuff. Yeah. And it's these small things about being willing to have conversations or inviting conversations yeah. and opening conversations, not being a dick. Literally these tiny things yeah. that I think people can be taking forward. But for some reason, we either feel like if we're not hitting the moon, then we're not yeah. I do think there's a little bit of a movement in our sector towards being good enough or doing mm. something good enough, which is trying to break that barrier between perfection and progress. It's not everywhere, but OK, let's do something that's good enough for now and then mm. build on it in the future. I guess that that leads people back to that sort of, yeah, but working with a repressive regime, is that a good enough place? Yeah. Or actually should we, ah, breaking yeah, it again. I, <laughs> I just put that mic too close to you. That, that's my fault. For, for a very small person i'm like a praying mantis <laughs> this, uh, that, like hitting everything in my arms <laughs> it's not yeah, a just, big space just yeah. stretch yeah. <laughs> yeah i think that there's no you were having the last point <laughs> was i yeah. yeah. Okay. Two will finish your sentence. Yeah. Okay. Well, what was my point? Someone remind <laughs> About me. the good enough. Yeah. yeah. I suppose that's where the good enough can also mean those compromises that we were talking before. It isn't a square that's easily circled or a circle that's easily squared. Again, I keep coming back to this idea that leadership is about making decisions and then being willing to own them and kind of go, look, this is the course I'm charting on this journey. That involves owning the good stuff we do, owning the not so good stuff we do, rather than it be one or the other. One of the things we come across is accountability. And I do feel that we are an accountability averse sector in that we are only held to account by donors. But loosely, we have to spend the money roughly the way that mm -mm. we said we're going to spend the money. But only in some types of programming do I feel like that accountability really puts organizations on the hook. So, for example, results based financing, where you pre-finance your programming, yeah. you get reimbursed if you do as you said you were going to do, although there are some ways to get around. 
on that at me if you want to know how. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> and but I wonder if that mentality of being largely unaccountable because you know we're doing the good work does that flow into our organizations in terms of being willing to own and hold hard decisions or to take things forward or to be accountable to the teams around mm. you i wonder if that mentality seeps into the way that we manage our teams i think it can do i mean if we, if we draw a rough analogy if you look at the corporate sector there's a big movement now to make shareholders and boards more accountable for, say, the environmental impact a company has had, because there's a general acknowledgement that if you're only accountable for profit to shareholders, that will, for the best will in the world, become what becomes the driving force. Mm. So I don't think it's a huge intuitive leap to say, well, actually, if you're only accountable for have I spent donors' money and achieved X outcomes that will become the driving force beyond how did you achieve the outcome? How are you running the organisation? What's going on within running the organisation? I think there's other factors. The sector does probably have more people wanting you to go in it than there is work. I think there's also an element of like, you've got to be grateful for your position here. Just <laughs> suck it up and deal with it. I mean, for the ones that are paid. For the one, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, for the ones that are paid. The unpaid ones are like, take yeah, yeah, and for the, the unpaid ones are thinking like, well, I want to eventually have a paid role. So yeah. am I going to put my head above the parapet and say, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. In that way, I think the not-for-profit sector can feel a lot like the arts sector and that's not a market that people can move around in so easily. And, and I mean, corporate sector has moments like that as well, certain areas of the corporate sector where people are afraid for their job, afraid for their careers. I think the other part is that in terms of accountability, a lot of the people know people, right? You know, a lot of people you know, you end up working at different organisations. When we work with clients, I'll say, oh, I was at this, and they'll go, oh, well, do you know so-and-so? Yeah, 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 so, yeah. It's a small sector. <laughs> To be accountable also means kind of exposing yourself in a way to a lot of people you know. Mm. So not just donors, you know, your colleagues. I mean, I suppose donors are also accountable to the public. So there is also another accountability chain there. But how accountable would you say the general public, like, do they hold to account for our type of stuff? Well, not if Boris Johnson's anything to go by. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, the general public is going to care about Partygate. They're not going to mm. care about yeah. what X, yeah. X organization and how many people they've served, even though that information is publicly available. I just don't imagine that the public's looking at it. I mean, I think they care about the amount of money that's being put into the charity or charity work. I mean, the 0.7% is often discussed, I think. As a member of the public, I've got no idea of what 0.7% could achieve. Yeah. Or does. So I can't say, oh, that project, well, that's brilliant. That achieved. Or I go, yeah. they spent how much and only got that? Yes, yeah, so know, true. As an outcome. Yeah. And it works mm. the other way, isn't it? People go, oh, it's a huge amount of money. And you go, that's actually a drop in the ocean. Yeah. You don't know how much yeah. it costs to kind of there, go yeah. to Haiti and do yeah. disaster relief. You yeah. know. When you've got 70 million displaced people, it's a drop yeah. in the ocean. Yeah. 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 The thing is, the general public don't have can't have a concept of what their donation means in terms of scale or what yeah. donors donation means in terms of scale i also think it bypasses the government mm. because in a scandal for example the general public will go straight to that organization they don't go government to organization i think they get really annoyed then the government that responds really to something i think the government maybe gets a little bit of flack but not as much and then they you. withhold the money yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, this is me going outside my remit of the spy leadership, but from a personal level, you can see that successive governments use the third sector as a way of outsourcing responsibility and going, yeah. oh, well, the third sector are going to deal with it yeah. because they know that the flack will go mm. that way. 
rather than come directly to them yep. and it not be a government project or a directly funded project. Very clever. <laughs> <laughs> Although they get really testy if you don't put their branding on the right project. <laughs> if you don't put their logo on your T-shirt, they get really annoyed. <laughs> We kind of segued very nicely into the difference between not-for-profits and for-profits. So from oh. your perspective, I'm curious, you talked about some of the differences, yeah. but in terms of maybe the challenges that they're facing, some of the stuff that they're coming to aspire for support on, any big glaring differences? Yes and no. I mean, yes, in that what people are doing and certain conversations that might have been had would be a lot more prevalent in one than the other. So if I come into a not-for-profit and I start talking about values, people will go, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that, you know, and, uh, and talk about that and leak values and culture. If I go into a corporate, there might be a bit more of, oh, yeah, we've got values written on a the website or you know they're on a pencil in the office it's laminated on the yeah. toilets <laughs> at the end of the day though the struggles we have at work people are people you said that people end up coming down to these problems so a lot of time people are talking they say look i really struggle to give feedback to my team i struggle to delegate because it's quicker for me to do it than it is for someone else i'm a leader i want to be spending my time being strategic i struggle to not end up in the weeds of the day-to-day, -day, or I struggle to even know what strategic even means because I'm just dealing with firefighting. Those are all human problems at work that transcend the context. And sometimes, you know, sometimes organisations want to go, oh, we need to tell you about our business. You need to understand our business. At the end of the day, I'm going to go in and talk to 12 people yeah. and they're going to have some stuff <laughs> going on. I suppose there is the other part is a level of trauma can come into it. You know, what people are having to hear about and what people are having to deal with in different organisations is very stark. Governmental third sector organisations might be facing stuff that where another person is like, oh, well, I need to give feedback about so-and-so has us filled in a spreadsheet. And then another week, it's, I have to give feedback because someone didn't do something and someone died. Yeah, you know? right, so yeah. there's a difference in scale in that sense. But I think the fundamental issues that people come back to are kind of human issues about workplace psychology, about how we communicate with each other, how we interact with each other as, as people. I think there's yeah. so much that's quotable in what you yeah. <laughs> so, Take it back to the people. Yeah, if you could type it all up and then I can publish it, yes, that would be great because I'm terrible a, at writing stuff up. We've got a transcription service. So oh, yeah. Awesome. yeah. yeah. <laughs> charge $5 for that. I'll make sure your logo is in an appropriate oh, place. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> I think that feels to me the centerpiece of a lot of the conversations that we have is that organizations will ask us to look at these big structural things, mm. these projects that they did. And I think part of the reason why they get so confused about us focusing on team structure leadership mm. is because what they want to hear about is the project. Yeah. Whereas for us, we're also talking about the project. <laughs> so we're all saying the same thing. We're looking at it from the people perspective and they're thinking about it from the activity perspective, whereas we're not separating those things. Yeah. Right. And they just on the golden nugget of this is the impact, this mm -hmm. is the achievement. Whereas to get to that point, there are so many things underneath yeah. it. People will end up going, oh, but there's a magic process. There's a magic system we can put in that will just solve this little wrinkle. And you're yeah. going to go, well, people, quite. Are, 
people, you know. Oh, we just need a process map. I'm like, okay, let's see how that goes for you. The point that you said about trauma is a really interesting area to explore. And I think being in the COVIDs, we're still working through how Mm. people are experiencing and processing that. We had a conversation a couple of months ago. Lauren was asking whether anybody was going to do a study on the trauma that people are experiencing around COVID. And I was like, where you're experiencing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't feel like people have processed it yet. You know, it happened and all ended, well, not ended, but it's all kind of adjusted quite quickly back to some kind of normality. And where's the processing? And how that affects people in their workplaces and their interactions. We we do get a lot of clients going, oh, how do I deal with my team post-COVID? And I want to say, well, good question. I'm working out how to deal with my team and even myself post-COVID. You know, let's try and work this out together. This is a new place we're in as a society, but also as workplaces. I have come away with some really good things to take forward. Oh, good. Me too. (laughs) Now I know why they pay you the big bucks. (laughs) Because I think there's just so much that we can take forward. And I'm sure that people listening will also feel the same way, just in terms of the conversations we can be Mm. having with each other, Lauren and I, as people who work on lots of projects together, but also in our relationships with our clients and how to establish that way of working and ways of being together, even though we work with them for short periods of time. They're really intense periods of time. And we never really established those ground rules, really. Mm. We have a service level agreement of... A one hour meeting. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. But then otherwise we could kind of get pushed off in our little life raft. Yeah, good luck. But I do think it's really important because some of the things that we're coming across is just a little micro environment Mm. of what I think is probably happening in the bigger organization. Because we often see that our experiences to some extent mirror the experiences of the things that people are talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I'm going to take it back to the people, the things that people are going through. And yeah, just putting people first, something I'm really going to take away from this. Um, And the story. And the story, me too. And the story that people tell at every different level. Fine, you (laughs) can have that one. (laughs) (laughs) They're competing. They're competing. Um, Well, amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for listening. I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. And I'm Pradeep. And this has been the journey to transformation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.